0: Get scratching! We got an explosive broadcast coming to you. Listen up! Sega games, just keep playing them. Sega! We're back. It's the Sega Bits Swing Report Show. Get ready for Sega interviews and news. Hello and welcome to the Sega Bit Swing and Report Show. I'm Barry. George will not be joining us this week, but we are joined by a very special guest, Mr. Sam Dyer, a graphic designer and the founder of Bitmap Books. Hello, Sam. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, um, yeah, this is our uh, our interview podcast. We don't do these as nearly as much as I wish we could, but I think uh, a lot of the reason is um, I like to get interesting, important people on. To talk, and uh, you know, it's it's difficult to get those every week, but I'm I'm very happy that you're joining us. I've been actually wanting to talk to you for a while about this project, but um, I thought, you know, in the past, I've always talked about books before they release, and there's sometimes just not much to, not as much to be said until after it releases, and so um, we're actually in a uh, it actually works out for us because kickstarter backers this was a kickstarter project they have the books in hand now and the book will be releasing on the 17th of june so we're actually kind of in a quasi release state um how's that going for you then so you are are things incredibly busy
1: yes yeah i mean it's 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 a bit of a weird one really because obviously we're talking about the master system book today which is as you say it's going to be released next monday but kind of the project was sort of finished quite a long time ago for me and in the world of sort of publishing, I've sort of moved on to the next project. Um, so it's quite an interesting um, thing because my head's kind of very much in, in metal slug at the moment. Mm, um, I right. to tune myself back into the Sega Master System. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so is that, is that typically how you operate? It's a smaller operation and you're um, you kind of go all in, in terms of your focus on either a developer or a game series or piece of hardware
1: oh totally yeah i mean bit books is really just me um, i'm very lucky to have a big pool of freelance writers and designers and illustrators that i can pull in as and when but day to day it's just me and i tend to when i take on a project completely immerse myself into it and to the point of being almost a bit obsessed. And it and that sort of it's about sort of a, say, three or four month sort of period around each around each book. And as I said a minute ago, I've just literally coming to the end of Metal Slug book now. So that's been my life mm. back and forth with SNK in Japan and which is never a bad thing, but been playing for all the Metal Slug games and um, been going through hundreds and hundreds of screenshots. And yeah, it's it is it is all in. Um, <laughs> all in and just get completely um no stone unturned around research and sort of you know things like that so yeah
0: so as you know as a one-man operation do you are you the one to decide what the next project will be and also does do your personal interests dictate what those are oh uh, uh, yeah absolutely i think
1: yeah to, to answer the first question it's it's definitely 100 my decision i mean by Books is my company. As I said, I'm the only one, that, I'm the only sort of decision maker. Mm-hmm. I'm very lucky in that sense, I guess, that there's no, you know, sort of shareholders or anything that, are, you know, dictating what, what I do next. Right. Um, it's also great because I can go at my own pace as well. So, you know, if real life, if something's going on in my real life or, you know, my other graphic design work is particularly busy, then I can sort of work the book projects around that, which works really well. Um, okay. Sorry, I forgot, I forgot what the second question was.
0: Oh no. Um, I, I think it was just, well, I guess what I would ask is, do you jump into a project with something that you're either unfamiliar with, or maybe not uncomfortable, but like a game that you have not played as much and you feel like you're not an expert on?
1: Oh, yes, yeah, sorry, yeah, that was it. Yeah, absolutely, I mean, when I first started Bitmap Books, I, started um i did a book on the Commodore 64 and that was my first computer that i had as a child and that was definitely my comfort zone mm. um, at the time being honest i didn't know that bitmap books would ever do more than that one book um you know i've always been a bit selfish in a way i wanted a book on the Commodore 64 so i sort of did one myself and sort of hoped that other people would want it as well um but over the over the years you know as the business has grown i've realized that i've had to cover subjects that i'm not necessarily an expert in Mm -hmm. Um, so for instance something like our third book was on the zx spectrum Um, now that was a massive computer in the uk but i was very much a Commodore 64 guy so you know i i've got a lot of knowledge in the computer but i'm not an expert by any means so what i've tended to do over the years is if I'm embarking on a project that, you know, I don't have a massive, massive amount of knowledge on, then I will work with people that do, you know, I would never rely on, you know, what I can find online. I would always work with, if I'm not an expert, then work with someone who is. Right. And, you know, who acts like a consultant and collaborate on the book to sort of make that happen. Um, And, you know, if I'm not, you know necessarily an expert in that particular game or system it doesn't make the book any less important or enjoyable you know they're all important um it's just you know if, if anything it's fun learning about something that you're not necessarily you know don't know that much about and you can learn and that's kind of like a really
0: fascinating part of it as well yeah absolutely and I'd i'd imagine too being in the books medium it works to your advantage because by the time you're finished with the project you you kind of have become an expert just through the research and all the work you've been doing whereas um i mean to speak to my own experience i do uh you know like i i don't consider myself a youtuber at all more like podcast and writer and stuff but um there's a very there's an immediacy to a lot of the things i'm doing and so i'll be you know i'll be talking for a youtube video and something will come up that i know nothing about and i'll just have to I try not to BS my way through it, but I try to be real and, you know, admit that I don't really know much of what I'm talking about. So I try not to make things up, but it's surprising how people will take you to task with um, (laughs) not having uh, holistic knowledge of all things Sega or all things video games. So I'm kind of envious of you uh, in that regard.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've I've already admitted that I'm not an expert in everything, but I think the most important thing is, is to not, you know, BS and say that you are, um, and just admit, you know, that you're not necessarily. But I think to add, you know, to make the books credible, mm-hmm. you, know, you have to, they have to be verified um, by an expert. So if that's not me, then it'll be someone else that I'll sort of pull in. Um, and yeah, I think I think learning is one of the one of the most enjoyable things of this because I've just learned so much about obscure famicom games or you know japanese mars system games and just some weird and wonderful things that i never would have
0: known anything about if i hadn't embarked on bitmap books oh absolutely there's so much to cover i mean um from just the sega perspective i've said uh you know there, there are people saying why why don't sega release more games why don't they release xyz and i have to ask people have you played all the games that Sega has released? Because if you just take the library up to the end of the Dreamcast, I very much doubt that that people have even scratched the surface of what's out there to, just to play and to learn about. Um, so it's very exciting. And you, so you mentioned the Commodore 64. That was kind of your thing. That was your platform, correct?
1: Yeah, that was my first introduction to... To computers and video games. And that was in 1989. Okay.
0: And what were your earliest games, uh, that you enjoyed playing?
1: Oh, um, I think the ones it came with my earliest memories of a game called international soccer, which mm. was a cut. I don't know if you're not familiar with these early Commodore 64 games, but it was a very looking back now, it was a very crude, very big chunky pixels football game left to right scrolled, and which made this really, um, really funny FUD noise every time he kicked the ball. (laughs) But it was, um, it was great. And, you know, so you spent hours on that. And another really weird one that I had was a game called fear to Europe, which was (laughs) which sounds sounds really bizarre, an eight year old playing a Cold War simulator. Uh huh. It was this big map of Europe, and it had all these dots on it, and you had to make strategic war moves. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was just waggling the joystick, pressing the keys, and every now and again, you'd get a cutscene of an explosion or, um, you know, some sort of like tank or something. And but at the time, it was great. You know, i never seen anything like it in my life, so I was fascinated with it. And I had, um, I think I had a few different compilations with some sort of you know sort of pac-man clones and you know sort of galaxian sort of clone and all that sort of stuff so that that was really my earliest memories but at the time it didn't really matter what the games were to be honest they just felt so magical and i just was just pretty much obsessed from that point on um i obviously had a gap around sort of teenage years as i think most people do um, around video games but mm-hmm. it's always been in my life and i've always been you know, ever since those early days in the Commodore 64, you know, I've been, been um, really obsessed with it all.
0: And there is quite a difference between the uh, American experience and uh, your experience, because I do know uh, home computers weren't as big a thing for gaming here as yeah. it was there. Um, I know, you know, I had an IBM system, but it was really my dad's and there were a few games on it I enjoyed playing. Um, so I'm curious, like, were there any... Did home consoles like uh, Sega and Nintendo products have any real um, prominence for you, or was it largely uh, more of the computer gaming?
1: Well, I think speaking for the for the country for the, for the UK as a general, as mm-hmm. you, as you sort of touched on a minute ago, it was really mainly computers. So we had three main computers: we had the Commodore 64, the ZX Spectrum, and the Amstrad CPC, and all three were eight bit computers, tape, cassette based. Mm -hmm. Um, And they really were quite affordable. Um, The games were really cheap as well. So when we were growing up, we were paying, the cheapest games were sort of two pounds, 99, sort of three pounds, sort of like, or like $5, something like that. Um, And if you were lucky, you know, the bigger sort of licensed games were about 10 pounds. So compare that to the cost of like an NES cartridge, which yeah. was about £40 at the time. It just, you know, the NES was over here. It was in, you know, you could see it in shops and in catalogs, but it was so few people had it. Um, it was really only the kids who who had rich parents who could who could have one because it was just so expensive, you know, going from asking for a game for your mum and dad, which was £3 to £40 was just insane, really. Mm. So the computers were were mega popular and i think the the zx spectrum sold something like 50 million units in the uk wow it, it was literally every kid you speak to had a zx spectrum because the games were just so cheap and they were so you know there um but the mass system um was really really big over here but i think it probably came later so mm-hmm. sort of like late 80s early 90s um and my experiences was that the mass system was cheaper than the NES. The games were cheaper as well. And it was definitely more it felt like a natural progression from the 8-bit computers. I think a lot of people upgraded those computers to the mass system. And the NES got kind of a bit overlooked, I think. And I think a large part of that is down to marketing, mm-hmm. Sega. Um Via Virgin Mastertronic had very, very good, very good distribution um, and marketing in the UK, and yeah, got a, a real good sort of stranglehold and a real good base for them. The Mega Drive releasing over here, which again was really big.
0: So, is is a lot of this based on your like knowledge? Looking back, did you grow up with a Sega Master System?
1: Yeah, so we had a Sega Master System at home. Me and my sister. Um, but a lot of what I'm sort of saying is also my knowledge from research in the book and speaking mm-hmm. to, um, we interviewed a guy called Nick Alexander, who was the CEO of Sega Europe and also the, um, one of the top guys at Virgin. So he was there when the Mars system was launching and he was very much involved in um, promoting it in the UK. So some of my, what I'm saying is based around that and also my own memories of growing up and just a lot of my friends had the Mars system and it was a system that um, it felt like a big jump up from the 8-bit computers. You know, you had these cartridge games and, you know, like Alex Kidd and stuff like that. And it it
0: it, it definitely was quite popular over here. So how did you, um, I guess, I, I'm curious, how did you get into graphic design and how did that lead to, um bitmap books becoming what it is
1: i think it all started from, from when i had my common 64 i don't know i don't know how many how many of your listeners are aware but the cassette loading games took about about 10 minutes to load so you'd put, rewind the tape put it in and you'd have to wait while it loaded and if you were lucky you got um, some flashing colored bars at the side while it was loading if you're really lucky you have got some music and also you'd get like a loading image hmm. um, so I used to sit there in my bedroom waiting for these games to load and I just used to be obsessed with looking at these loading images so it'd just be like a static image of I don't know Batman or Robocop whatever the game was you were playing and I just couldn't believe that someone could draw an image like that on a computer and you know looking back you know it's obviously incredibly crude and blocky but the, as, as a child it really captured my imagination um interestingly i never went into game sort of design but that really was my first sort of foray into messing around doing computer graphics and drawing and painting and i've just sort of carried that all the way through really um into my professional life obviously then wanting to do sort of professional graphic design. And then once I'd worked in the industry for a few years and worked in London, um, for various design firms, I had the idea to start Bitmap Books because I felt like I had enough experience being a graphic designer and it felt like a good time to sort of, you know, to be honest, I'd done years and years of working for clients that, you know, I'm not necessarily that passionate about like law firms and mm-hmm. you know, all that sort of stuff, as I'm sure you're aware. Yes. It's great, it pays the bills, but it's not, you know, designing another law firm's brochure isn't really what I get out of bed for. Um, so the thought of being able to design a book on a retro computer system that I had as a child was just like a dream come true. So, I mean, that's really how it started, really. It was just a case of, you know why not to test the water see if there's an audience out there for such a book and luckily there there was and there is and yeah that's kind of like that was sort of five years ago
0: and Mm -hmm. yeah and so how would you say bitmap books differs from other retro game history publishers because we've really i I think we've hit a a renaissance of um gaming books it's not just guides anymore and we now have stuff um from uh read-only memory um i'm trying to think hardcore gaming does some books ken horowitz though it's mostly text um so how how would you say bitmap differs from what those guys are doing
1: i think i think our bitmap books point of difference has been the visual nature of the book so the other publishers you mentioned um, such as read-only memories produce amazing books um, but I think ours, I think ours almost the point of difference has almost been a bit of a criticism in the sense over the years is that my, my, um, initial vision from the Commodore 64 book all those years ago was that the, the image was the main thing. So for me, looking at that Robocop screen was the thing that brought back all those memories it wasn't looking at pages and pages of text that wasn't going to make me feel nostalgic so i believed that you know that old saying of a picture speaks a thousand words um so the idea was a tiny bit of text with a big image Mm -hmm. that's where i started with it and i think at the time no one was doing anything like that and i think looking back it was quite sort of it, it made my book stand out and my my design, my designer's eye, I guess, and my sensibilities allowed me to be able to pull that off aesthetically, um, with text and image working together in like quite a nice way that didn't look messy. Um, but over the years, you know, there has been you know, criticism around that approach in the sense that it's quite, you know, people say that the books are just picture books and you know there's no sort of substance there. So it has been something that I've tried to address over the years addressed address the balance. So particularly in the Mars system book, which we've just, which we've just released, it's, um, it's much more of a balance between text and pictures. But I would say that the core um, of the book is still screenshots from games and those sort of nostalgia inducing images. But I, it's, it's hard to explain. I think the books have almost just sort of like matured a little bit And they're not so picture-based now. There is more to read as well. And I think it's a really nice balance that we sort of struck.
0: Was it at all a reaction to um, gaming magazines in terms of your visual aesthetic? Because at least from my own experience, um, I feel like a lot of early gaming mags didn't do much justice to games. The screenshots would be very small. I remember, I'm trying to remember who did it right. Official Dreamcast magazine and uh, Xbox Nation, which was an unofficial one from the Dreamcast magazine staff um, in the U.S. were kind of doing it right. I'd say, you know, filling pages with screenshots, using them um, in conjunction conjunction with the text. Was there any thought involved with that?
1: Um, Not really. I mean, there wasn't. I mean, it was just my desire just to sort of strip it right back mm-hmm. to what actually, because obviously in magazines, they use things like box outs and, um, you know, big images with small images underneath. I really wanted to just strip it right back to the bare, to the bare bones of, and let that image and those pixels, which is another big thing as well, is not, is to really keep those pixels nice and clean and not... Put like CRT filters over the um, pixels to make them look fuzzy. I really wanted um, the the book to show the craft around how these artists, you know, put these little color blocks in a certain sequence to make them look so amazing. So I think that sort of approach was definitely a sort of a, um, a differentiation because we were focusing mainly on the graphics of the games. We weren't you know, talking about audio or programming necessarily, it was really championing the artists. Um, but I think another thing that's made us stand out over the years are the different print finishes mm-hmm. that we used on the book. So we were the first publisher to use lenticular on the cover of our books. Um, so for those of your listeners that don't know what lenticular is, it's like a plastic sheet and it's got, um It's almost got like two or three images in it. And when you move it sort of animates sort of like different frames. So, um, the first book we did that for was the NES book. And so on the front cover, you'd have like a Sprite of Mario, for instance. And when you moved the book, it it looked like he was jumping. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was quite a cool, cool thing to do. And I think those things like that and foil blocking and colored ribbons and in you know, all the different slipcase designs and special editions we've done, I think sort of makes bitmap books stand out from
0: the other publishers. How do you go about uh, capturing the images so that they retain the pixels and remain as sharp as possible?
1: Yeah, so that was one of the first things that I sort of had to work out before I committed to doing the, the first book. So, essentially, what what I worked out how to do was to take screenshots from within within an emulator Mm -hmm. and make sure they're taken on a certain setting so that the pixels are pin sharp and they're not sort of like um, fuzzy. Um, And if they're pin sharp, um, almost vector-like, that means you can then enlarge that image in Photoshop to as big as you want effectively, Um, and then make it for 300 DPI for print um and then also within like the common 64 book i also because the Commonwealth 64 only had about 12 colors i could literally have that palette of swatches in photoshop and color balance each screenshot so every single you know red in the book was the same red throughout Mm -hmm. little things little attention little things like that i think you know, make this may, may, maybe no one ever noticed, but it was you know sort of thing
0: that I sort of cared about. So the Master System book, it's number six in the series. Yes. Number one was um, Commodore. Yes, yeah, so the number one was Commodore sixty four. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two
1: was the Commodore Amiga, which I believe you guys had in the states as well, but lesser so for the games. Mm-hmm. Um, third was ZX Spectrum which was very sort of UK and sort of Russia and Spain um, sort of had had it as well, but to to us, maybe a sort of lesser degree. And then we, for book four, we moved on to the consoles. So I looked at the NES and the Famicom. So that was the sort of first time that I'd really um, looked into a Japanese system as well, which was fascinating. And then, Book five was the Super Nintendo and the Super
0: Famicom. And then, yeah, as you said, book six was the Sega Master System. So how has the process changed from book one to book six? Six. I think touching on what I said earlier, it's really around
1: the content. I mean, when I did the Commodore 64 book, it really was just me because it was essentially a few written features and and mainly just screenshots from games. I could do it largely myself, whereas now it's become a much bigger project around collaboration. So I'll have a team of writers that will write the features, constantly interviewing people, getting those interviews transcribed and edited for the book. Um, So it's just turned into a, a more, I mean, it's quite a well-oiled process, but it's just turned into a, a bigger process and more more research needed and just, you know, sort of standard things around when projects get bigger, they require more research, more time, more, more resources and more people. Mm-hmm. That's really, but the essence is the same of the book. They're just, you could argue, they're just bigger and better than they were You know from book one so require more time
0: Mm -hmm. so the master system book this is officially licensed and um how would you say this process working on this whole book compared to ones that are uh, unofficial because i i do know that um the nes one are denoted on the cover as being the unofficial um, visual compendium
1: yeah so i think there's pros and cons for unofficial and unofficial. If um, I start with unofficial, so the NES, the NES book, the, the good thing about being unofficial is that you don't have to worry about you can pretty much include whatever games you want. But Obviously, there are restrictions around being unofficial some things you can't, you don't have access to official assets from the company. And you probably wouldn't have access to um, interviews with employees in Nintendo, for instance, because they don't give out interviews for unofficial products. With the Sega Master System book, we had the opportunity to work with Sega, and I kind of weighed it up and thought it'd be best to go um, official with this one because they could um, give us access to certain interviews with current employees who worked on, you know, games that are in the book. Um, one of the main, I suppose, disadvantages, um, which is kind of what I mentioned a second ago is around the games. So one of the things I had to do, which was a complete ball, like is get permission from all of the, to include the third party games. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, um, a real headache because I I literally had to um, go through and all the games say for instance like Rocky. If I wanted to include Rocky I had to get permission from Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer to include Rocky because they obviously own the copyright to um, Rocky Balboa. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, Some of them were, were, were easy because I've already got a relationship with Capcom so you know Capcom were very very kind and allowed you know Forgotten Worlds and Strider Um, and you know on 99% of the games that I wanted to include I could and it was just you know blood sweat and tears emailing Japanese companies getting emails translated and calling on my various contacts to you know do introductions and all that sort of stuff. Um, The only real um, downer really was that for various licensing reasons, we couldn't include the Wonderboy games, Mm -hmm. which sort of is quite upsetting uh, because obviously they're so iconic on a mass system that it was a real shame that they couldn't be included. And it will forever haunt me that Mm -hmm. they're not in the book. But, you know, hey, there are hundreds of games in the book and, you know, that's just two or three games that couldn't make it. But Right. um, So, as I said, it's sort of, you know, I think... On the plus side, we had access to um, lots of official assets, artworks, um, interviews, all that sort of stuff. Also, we managed to secure Mark Cerny to write the foreword in the Mm -hmm. book. And I don't believe that Mark would have written the foreword if the book hadn't been official and endorsed. I think it's a selling point. Um, And then obviously you've got the fact that it's official that it, could arguably make the book more collectible. And also um, it makes it uh, that Sega will be actively promoting it as well. So from a marketing point of view, it makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, pros and cons for each for each thing.
0: But, Go ahead. Have up? you noticed an increase in um, uh, maybe like sales and um, eyeballs seeing the book and people talking about because of this official status and Sega actively promoting the book?
1: I think that's quite hard to answer at the moment, because the mm-hmm. book's not officially released till next Monday. I mean, the Kickstarter did extremely well. Um, it's very hard to say whether it would have done better or worse if the book wasn't, wasn't official. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's hard, hard to say. <laughs> at the moment. I would like to think that the fact it's official makes it
0: more desirable i think okay that's interesting um so in regards to the sega master system um as an american growing up it was not that popular here and you know i i recall I, i grew up on the genesis and i knew about the master system i didn't know what it was i don't think i really learned what it was until the late 90s and um because there just was no real knowledge base out there. There weren't that many fan sites talking about it. Um, There were definitely no books covering the history of it. Uh, Whereas, like you were saying, the master system was much more popular in Europe. And something I've noticed with a lot of these retro gaming books is they come from uh, people who grew up um, in Europe, in Britain. um, And as such, it's kind of telling their story was there did when you approach this book did you look more at a worldwide sort of story about the master system a worldwide experience or would you say this is this book is more catering towards a specific audience
1: no i mean i always try and treat it as a, as to, to appeal to as many people as possible mm-hmm. i mean naturally it was it was very, very popular in the UK, the mass system. So some, you know, maybe the majority of the focus is on that market. But where possible, I've tried to um, include as many um, different markets tools, so we, we cover a lot of the American launch of the mass system, because mm-hmm. although you mentioned it wasn't massively successful, it still was a big thing, you know, from a marketing point of view, in in America, and we've interviewed Steve Hanawa and uh, John Sawyer as well, who um, worked, who Steve worked for Sega and John worked for Tonka, Mm -hmm. um, who were obviously involved in the distribution of the Masters of America. So we cover that story quite a lot. And it's it's fascinating, you know, their views on why the master system sort of failed in America. And it isn't just as simple as the NES outsold it. There are other sorts of reasons around that and also interviewing Nick Alexander, as I said earlier, who was um, one of the major um, distributors in sort of Europe. Um, And we've interviewed um, three or four Japanese developers as well through Sega. Um, So try to try to cover all the angles and also when we've when we've covered games we've included japanese only games as well and also um, european only games and also brazilian mm-hmm. only games and then when we've talked about hardware we've made sure we've photographed the mark 3 as well so we've covered the sort of the japanese sorts of, sort of side of things and i think you know i think it just makes it more interesting yeah. when you yeah. cover the japanese stuff as well because everyone's so used to seeing the Mark system but you know some people might not have seen the Mark III and what the Mark III cartridges look like. So I think it's just makes it more interesting for me designing
0: it and for the reader as well. That's cool. Yeah, because I mean, like I was saying, there isn't that much of an American experience in regards to the master system, but there's some amazing stories. So that's great that uh, Tonka's covered. Um, Mm. I actually, I visited the former Tonka headquarters. I didn't go inside, I just looked at the outside and I'm actually gonna be, back near there this coming weekend. So maybe I'm going to take a little trip in the car and uh, snap some Snapchat. photos again. I mean, it's nothing really to look at, but it's just kind of cool to know that Sega history was happening out there. And um, so how, how would you describe the uh, European experience with the Master System in terms of the marketing? Was it aggressive? Was it funny? How, how did you see that and how did it affect you growing up? The marketing for the master system in, in the UK was quite,
1: um, they had a tagline, which was do me a favor, plug me into a Sega, Mm -hmm. the whole Virgin, the whole Virgin advertising for the Sega Master System was quite sort of in your face um, and making it quite youthful and fun. Um, That's my sort of memories of it. Um, And there were lots of magazines over here at the time as well, focusing on Sega. And the sort of the emerging console market, but it is a strange one in the UK because we were such a computer orientated country. Um, But I think the when it came to things like arcade conversions, the 8-bit computers just couldn't really handle them. So when it was when we saw Outrun on the Master System or Space Harrier or Afterburner, it was a big thing over here, you know, because it, it was like, wow, this is, this is a real step up. Um, and it felt like you, you, it was the first time you really felt like you had an arcade in your home,
0: you know, cause it just wasn't the same on the computers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The American marketing, from what I recall, it was a lot of just kind of, I know there were those posters that said, uh, take hold of the Sega adventure. A lot of the manuals and the boxes just, I don't know, and maybe this was the same over there. I'm not sure how the uh, the copy was in those, but they were all very much like you are the hero of this game. This is what you're doing. Have fun. You know, it was very direct and to the point in terms of how the games were presented to you. I remember, I think it was like Shinobi. It wouldn't talk about the character and their name. It would be more like you are a ninja. Go have some fun, and um, it it was very. I guess stripped down almost like uh, just, just placing the player into a situation and saying, go have fun with it. There was no real character to the marketing. There was no real voice. Um, I have all the old newsletters and they were all just kind of, I mean, they were called, I think the Sega newsletter, you know, there was nothing um, too enticing or exciting about it.
1: And I, I have to
0: wonder where that was coming from. And did any of that bleed into Europe?
1: So, so it, I mean, in your, I think it really comes down to the
0: to the distributors
1: and the difference in the company. So Tonka were obviously a toy a toy um, distributor or maker, and I think you're right that yeah, the way the mask system was was marketed in America was quite sort of straight. I think, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, I don't want to say it was advertised as boring, but it wasn't. <laughs> but, but like you say, there wasn't a character like Nintendo had. Nintendo power, didn't they? And, you know, they had Howard Phillips and he was a personality and, you know, they have Mario and all these different characters, but yeah, I think, I just think it failed to capture the imaginations of, of, um, the kids. And I just think the NES over there was a big thing as well. Yeah. But Virgin, I don't, um, about how you, or you are of the company Virgin, but, um, they're quite a sort of a fun sort of brand. And I think they brought that sort of fun and youthfulness into into the mass system, the advertising. And um, yeah, that's it, it, it definitely felt fun. Um, And um, as I said, it stood out, and it felt definitely different.
0: Now, I did want to touch on this briefly. Um, As a Kickstarter backer, I, I was following the news, there was a warehouse fire. Um, which led to a reprint and a delay in shipping. This happened in China, correct?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I we just just had a lovely Christmas with my family and got back to work and sat at my desk on the third or fourth of January, I think it was, and I had a phone call from my printer saying that there'd been a fire in um, in the port, and you know to put it into context these warehouses are like the sizes of football pitches mm-hmm. and a couple of these warehouses had gone up in flames and all i knew for a while was that um that the books could have been affected because they were in a warehouse they were waiting to be brought back to the uk so my last communication with the backers had been you know here's here's the book it looks amazing we just gotta wait a little bit for transportation so to go from that to hearing that There'd been a fire it was obviously heartbreaking yeah. and I was kind of in the dark for a long time as well because I didn't actually know whether they had actually been damaged and it took a few weeks to actually find out for sure Um, but I think throughout all of my books and all of my kickstarters I've always tried to be really upfront honest and communicate all the time with backers and I just kept that kept that up really and was just really honest explain what happened and you know not one person you know said anything you know slightly negative mm-hmm. about it everyone was really supportive everyone was really understanding and you know the poor backers such as yourself had to mm-hmm. wait like an extra three months yeah get the book and i know you know you know it's three months is only three months but it is frustrating for everyone but everyone was really super understanding about it and. Um, it just, when the book was finally delivered to Kickstarter back a couple of weeks ago, it, to see the positive, um, comments, um, and you know, the multiple messages I receive from people, it just, just blows your mind. And it just makes every single bit of hard work and hard decision and all that sort of stuff, just so worth it. And it's the, one of the most rewarding parts of creating these books.
0: Yeah, and I got to say, as someone who's backed several Kickstarters, um, I just have to applaud your transparency and your ability to make uh, <laughs> co- co- coherent, cohesive posts uh, on a continuing basis. It's very refreshing in a world where there's a lot of Kickstarters where people just kind of, you know, it gets filled and then they they just sit back and they don't say anything for months, sometimes years.
1: Yeah, and,
0: and so you've done a fantastic job. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. And uh, the whole situation, as is, is, uh, unfortunate as it was, I think you handled it really well. Oh, thank you.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things that I've also really wanted to do was to, you know, given making back in the Kickstarter feel like a, a special thing and to not make people feel like, you know, because there'd be nothing worse than back in the Kickstarter and you see this all the time that then the, the, the someone releases it like a week later and you can buy it cheaper. Yeah. It's a complete kicking the teeth to the <laughs> Kickstarter backers. So I've always tried my hardest to make sure my books are never discounted. Um, you know, and I think on the whole, you know, I, I don't discount them myself. Um, maybe other people do, but it's never much. And also there's always a, I, if I'm going to release it, to the general public, I always give the Kickstarter backers like a few weeks of exclusivity so they feel like they've got a you know the bragging rights for a few weeks mm-hmm. when everyone else is sort of looking at it. So yeah, no, it's it's nice that you say that and it's definitely a conscious thing that I've always tried to just be honest and upfront and clear. And I think I think yeah people like yourself do do
0: really appreciate that. So the delay, it did. Did that bring any positive things to the the book as it is now? Were there any additional changes you made to the printing process or the colors?
1: Not really. There was a couple of very minor things that I changed with the print. That
0: mm-hmm.
1: I only I would ever notice. Um, there was. We probably shouldn't admit to this, but there was one or two small typos that I spotted. Oh, there always are typos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Um, which people always like to highlight on Twitter, but um, yeah, there's a couple of typos I caught, which was which was you know obviously nice. I would have preferred the final to happen, but it was nice to catch those typos. And uh, I think there was a couple of very small graphical things that I felt I could tweak, and did that. So yeah, I think you know if you, I always try and look on the bright side of things and find positives and negatives, and I think the book is a few percent better
0: than it was before the (laughs) fire oh that's good and um so other retro gaming book companies out there have covered the genesis the dreamcast um i i do note that they always skip the master system they always skip the saturn um so i'm i'm very happy to finally have a master system book in my hands i am interested though are you Ever going to cover similar ground? Do you think the Genesis is in your near future?
1: I hope so. That's always been the plan. The problem is, is that it's it it would be going through Sega again. Mm-hmm. Um, I see no reason to sort of change that. And they are very busy at the moment with their own projects, such as the mm-hmm. Mega Drive Mini or the Genesis Mini. So yeah, I mean, they they are very, very aware that I want to follow this up with a Genesis slash Mega Drive version. Yeah. It's on the cards. Um, it's just a case of just being patient. And, um, you know, they're, the feedback I've had from them on the Master System book is great. They're really mm-hmm. happy mm-hmm. with it. So I've just got to just cross my fingers and just keep plugging away and hopefully they can agree to Mega Drive book but just to reassure everyone that is looking forward to it it is very much on my agenda and something I'm pushing for but unfortunately I can't say yes or no because it's just not been approved by them.
0: Of course yeah you've got to imagine though that uh, come the holiday season there's definitely going to be renewed interest and um, thankfully Sega have really put a lot of hard work into the mini from what we've been seeing it looks like it's actually going to be
1: no, the pennies dropped at last. They realised that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, it is
1: amazing what they're doing with it. Actually, um, it's, the, it's the game, the the lineup
0: on it is. I was completely shocked. What surprised you the most? Just to talk about that briefly.
1: Um, I think what surprised me the most, probably the Konami games. Well, it just just all of the third party stuff on it, mm-hmm. really, because for years Sega have just been flogging their first party. Things Alter Beast, Alex Kidd, Sonic. Mm-hmm. now they're obviously embracing their third-party games, and I think that was the biggest shot for me. It was just it was just the inclusion of 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 um, those sorts of types of games on 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 the mini. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I think yeah, long may it continue. That they'll obviously, you know, I think it's it's it, it's great, and I've heard that um, that they're going to be they're really going to town on the ui and the sort of menu screen music and the whole package i think and i even saw some things last week that there's going to be like a little i don't know if it was a joke or there was like a mini like a um like a 32x <laughs> add-on for it and a, and a mega cd add-on yeah it.
0: those are legitimate they're they don't do anything but they they sit there and make it look bigger on your shelf um yeah yeah
1: it's it's, it's, it's it's great. And, you know, obviously they've seen the success of the, the NES and the SNES mini, and they've realized that, you know, if these things are done properly, they can be really mega popular. So, you know, I think it's for, for all Sega fans. It's a, it's a good
0: time to be alive. I think. Absolutely. And, you know, talking about the um, Sega CD 32X and maybe, you know, even the Saturn, because a lot of people forget the Saturn was a 2d powerhouse. Do you have any interest in covering those As books, I know a 32X book would probably be 32 pages, but um, (laughs) still, uh, they are very, very interesting pieces of hardware that I feel get overlooked.
1: Yeah, I think if I, if and when I cover a um, a Mega Drive book, I think I would probably look to include 32X and Mega CD as part of the book, whether they're included or as separate sort of like additions, but Mm. I think they sort of live as the same family for me. Um as far as the Saturn goes, I I would love to cover it. It's just a case of I'm kind of trying to do things in a bit of a chronological order. Yeah. At the moment. So well not not strictly in chronological order, but I don't feel quite ready to jump into that sort of era of games yet. Because I'm still sort of very much in I know obviously the Saturn was did have 2d games on it but it was sort of polygons and that sort of start of that era wasn't over the playstation so um i i i question whether there's the nostalgia around that era of games just yet i might be wrong but the playstation certainly i don't think it's quite there yet um, but i certainly want to cover all of that sort of side of things in the future
0: yeah you, you know you could always consider too if you ever did a mega drive book you could have uh, physical add on books that snap on for the 32X and, and Sega CD, so you could make a power <laughs> of power out of uh, so physical books. <laughs> Maybe use Lego bricks or something to connect them. I don't know. But, um, well, that's great. Is there anything else you wanted to um, mention or add about the uh, Sega Master System, a visual compendium book?
1: Um,
0: yeah, just really, I suppose
1: I could talk a little bit about some of the sort of the content. Um, I've sort of touched on it a little bit throughout throughout the interview, but um, as I said, the the main sort of content of the book is made up of um, different various game spreads. So a double page spread in the book will be a a single game. And then on that page, there'll be a block of text around about 200 words. And that could be um, a comment from the, the developer of the game or the artist or the musician, or it could be a review of the game by a well-known games journalist. And that's really the main bulk of the book. And then sort of to break all that up, we've got a series of interviews. We've got five interviews in the book, and then we've got um, some different sort of features throughout the book as well. So we've got sections on the various hardware, um, which is all sort of done photographically and we've got a section on box art as well which covers the mass system um sort of the western and the japanese covers
0: yeah i love that section
1: yeah um and there's a section on arcade conversions and we also touch on the mass system of brazil where we've interviewed um tech toy as well to get their sort of insights into the brazilian market so it is really a a real big celebration of of everything mass system. And we've even, uh, you know, it is a bit of a gimmick, but we some some of the, the 3D games um, are actually done in sort of like a mock 3D effect and mm-hmm. a set of 3D glasses. So you can pop them on and you get like a, a very subtle sort of 3D effect, which isn't supposed to mimic the um, the shutter glasses, because you never sort of could, but. Right just a little bit of an extra little bit of fun that I wanted to have and it, you know I thought it sort of worked quite well as a gimmick <laughs> yeah so I mean that's that's kind of it really and the book um, book is 426 pages Um, it comes with uh, a spot varnished dust jacket and then it comes within a heavy duty slip case as well with a lenticular panel on the front so you can see alex kid animating and stuff so it comes as one sort of package that's kind of all there is really to sort
0: of say so it's a hefty tome for sure so people can uh, learn more about um everything you're doing at bitmapbooks.co.uk there's a store there news shipping hey even gift cards uh praise i like the praise section and um <laughs> Yeah, everything's here. And also, uh, what's your Twitter account? It's a, it's Bitmap Bitmap Books right there. Yeah.
1: Bitmap underscore books, I believe.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. So the book will be out next week as we uh, release this. And you can check that out. It retails for $29.99 in the UK, or $39.99 in the US. It's a fantastic book, the official Sega Master System, a visual compendium. Again, Sam, thank you so much for speaking with me. And um, I'm looking forward to what you've got next, uh, not just for Sega, but just for all things video games. You're doing a fantastic job. So uh, thank you again for speaking. And thank you just for, you know, making books. Thank you very much. It's It's been great to talk to you. It's been great fun. All right. Well, thank you. Segabits. Segabits is a fan site that is not in any way officially affiliated with Sega. Sonic the Hedgehog and all Sega-related trademarks are copyright Sega. All other featured trademarks are the property of their respective owners. Don't forget to check out segabits.com, and you can find us on all major social networks. Just search Segabits.